1: The Recollections of Rifleman Harris, read by Stephen Davis Chapter 1 My father was a shepherd, and I was a sheep boy from my earliest youth. Indeed, as soon almost as I could run, I began helping my father to look after the sheep on the downs of Blantford in Dorsetshire, where I was born. Whilst I continued to tend the flocks and herds under my charge, and occasionally in the long winter nights to learn the art of making shoes. I grew a hardy little chap, and was one fine day in the year 1802, drawn as a soldier for the Army of Reserve. Thus, without troubling myself much about the change which was to take place in the hitherto quiet routine of my days, I was drafted into the 66th Regiment of Foot, bid goodbye to my shepherd companions, and was obliged to leave my father without an assistant to collect his flocks just as he was beginning more than ever to require one. Nay, indeed, I may say to want-tending and looking after himself, for old age and infirmity were coming on him, his hair was growing as white as the sleet of our downs, and his countenance becoming as furrowed as the ploughed fields around. However, as I had no choice in the matter, it was quite as well that I did not grieve over my fate. My father tried to buy me off, and would have persuaded the sergeant of the sixty-six that I was of no use as a soldier, from having maimed my right hand by breaking the forefinger when a child. The sergeant, however, said I was just the sort of little chap he wanted, and off he went, carrying me, amongst a batch of recruits he had collected, away with him. Almost the first soldiers I ever saw were those belonging to the corps in which I was now enrolled a member, and, on arriving at Winchester, we found the whole regiment there in quarters, whilst lying at Winchester, where we remained three months. Young as I was in the profession, I was picked out, amongst others, to perform a piece of duty that, for many years afterwards, remained deeply impressed upon my mind, and gave me the first impression of the stern duties of a soldier's life. A private of the 70th Regiment had deserted from that corps, and afterwards enlisted into several other regiments. Indeed, I was told at the time, though I cannot answer for so great a number, that the sixteen different times he had received the bounty and then stolen off. Being, however, caught at last, he was brought to trial at Portsmouth and sentenced by general court martial to be shot. The sixty sixth received a route to Portsmouth to be present on the occasion, and, as the execution would be a good hint to us younguns, there were four lads picked out of our corps to assist in this piece of duty, myself being one of the number chosen. Besides these men, four soldiers from three other regiments were ordered on the firing party, making 16 in all. The place of execution was Portsdown Hill, near Hilsey Barracks, and the different regiments assembled must have composed a force of about 15,000 men, having been assembled from the Isle of Wight, from Chichester, Gosport and other places. The site was very imposing and appeared to make a deep impression on all there. As for myself, I felt that I would have given a good round sum, had I possessed it, to have been in any situation rather than the one in which I now found myself. And when I looked into the faces of my companions, I saw, by the pallor and anxiety depicted in each countenance, the reflection of my own feelings. When all was ready, we were moved to the front, and the culprit was brought out. He made a short speech to the parade, acknowledging the justice of his sentence and that drinking and evil company had brought the punishment upon him. He behaved himself firmly and well, and did not seem at all to flinch. After being blindfolded, he was desired to kneel down behind a coffin, which was placed on the ground, and the drum major of the Hillsea Depot, giving us an expressive glance, we immediately commenced loading. This was done in the deepest silence, and the next moment we were primed and ready, There was then a dreadful pause for a few moments, and the drum major, again looking towards us, gave the signal, before agreed upon, a flourish of his cane, and we levelled and fired. We had been previously strictly enjoined to be steady and take good aim, and the poor fellow, pierced by several balls, fell heavily upon his back, and as he lay, with his arms pinioned to his sides, I observed that his hands waved for a few moments like the fins of a fish when in the agonies of death. The drum major also observed the movement, and making another signal, four of our party immediately stepped up to the prostrate body, and placing the muzzles of their pieces to the head, fired and put him out of his misery. The different regiments then fell back by companies, and the word being given to march past in slow time, when each company came in line with the body, the word was given to mark time, and then eyes left in order that we might all observe the terrible example. We then moved onwards and marched from the ground to our different quarters. The 66th stopped that night about three miles from Portsdown Hill, and in the morning we returned to Winchester. The officer in command that day, I remember, was General Whitelock, who was afterwards brought to court-martial himself. This was the first time of our seeing that officer. The next meeting was at Buenos Aires and during the confusion of that day, one of us received an order from the fiery Crawford to shoot the traitor dead if he could see him in the battle. Many others of the rifles receiving the same order from that fine and chivalrous officer. The unfortunate issue of the Buenos Aires affair is a matter of history, and I have nothing to say about it, but I well remember the impression it made upon us all at the time, and that Sir John Moore was present at Whitelock's court-martial, General Crawford, and I think, General Ork Muty. Captain Ellador of the Rifles, Captain Dixon and one of our privates being witnesses. We were at Hythe at the time and I recollect our officers going off to appear against Whitelock. So enraged was Crawford against him, that I heard say he strove hard to have him shot. Whitelock's father, I also heard, was at his son's trial and cried like an infant during the proceedings. Whitelock's sword was broken over his head, I was told, and for months afterwards, when our men took their glass, They used to give us a toast, success to grey hairs, but bad luck to white locks. Indeed, that toast was drunk in all the public houses around for many a day. Everything was new to me, I remember, and I was filled with astonishment at the bustling contrast I was so suddenly called into from the tranquil and quiet of my former life. Whilst in Winchester, we got a route for Ireland, and embarking at Portsmouth, crossed over and landed at Cork. There we remained nine weeks and being a smart figure and very active I was put into the light company of the 66th and together with the light corps of other regiments we were formed into light battalions and sent off to Dublin. Whilst in Dublin I one day saw a corps of the 95th Rifles and fell so in love with their smart, dashing and devil-may-care appearance that nothing would serve me till I was a rifleman myself. So on arriving at Cashel one day and falling in with a recruiting party of that regiment, I volunteered into the 2nd Battalion. This recruiting party were all Irishmen, and had been sent over from England to collect, amongst others, men from the Irish militia, and were just about to return to England. I think they were as reckless and devil-may-care a set of men as I ever beheld, either before or since. Being joined by a sergeant of the 92nd Highlanders, and a Highland Piper of the same regiment, also a pair of real rollicking blades. I thought we should all have gone mad together. We started on our journey, one beautiful morning in tip-top spirits from the Royal Oak at Cashel, the whole lot of us, early as it was, being three sheets to the wind. When we paraded before the door of the Royal Oak, the landlord and landlady of the inn, who were quite as lively, came reeling forth with two decanters of whisky, which they thrust into the fists of the sergeants making them a present of decanters and all, to carry along with them, and refresh themselves on the march. The piper then struck up, the sergeants flourished their decanters, and the whole route commenced a terrific yell. We then all began to dance, and danced through the town, every now and then stopping for another pull at the whisky decanters. Thus we kept it up till we had danced, drank, shouted, and piped thirteen Irish miles from Cashel to Clonmel. Such a day, I think, I never spent as I enjoyed with these fellows, and on arriving at Clonmel, we were as glorious as any soldiers in all Christendom need wish to be. In about ten days after this, our sergeants had collected together a good batch of recruits, and we started for England. Some few days before we embarked, as if we had not been bothered enough already with the unruly paddies, we were nearly pestered to death with a detachment of old Irish women, who came from different parts, on hearing of their sons having enlisted, in order to endeavour to get them away from us. Following us down to the water's edge, they hung to their offspring, and, dragging them away, sent forth such dismal howls and moans that it was quite distracting to hear them. The lieutenant commanding the party ordered me, being the only Englishman present, to endeavour to keep them back. It was, however, as much as I could do to preserve myself from being torn to pieces by them. And I was glad to escape out of their hands. At length, we got our lads safe on board and set sail for England. No sooner were we at sea, however, than our troubles began afresh, with these hot-headed paddies, for, having now nothing else to do, they got up a dreadful quarrel amongst themselves, and a religious row immediately took place, the Catholics reviling the Protestants to such a degree that a general fight ensued. The poor Protestants, being few in number, soon got the worst of it, and as fast as we made matters up among them, they broke out afresh and began the riot again. From Pill, where we landed, we marched to Bristol and thence to Bath. Whilst in Bath, our Irish recruits roamed about the town, staring at and admiring everything they saw, as if they had just been taken wild in the woods. They all carried immense shillelaghs in their fists, which they would not quit for a moment, Indeed, they seemed to think their very lives depended on possession of these bludgeons, being ready enough to make use of them on the slightest occasion. From Bath we marched to Andover, and when we came upon Salisbury Plain, our Irish friends got up a fresh row. At first they appeared uncommonly pleased with the scene, and, dispersing over the soft carpet of the Downs, commenced a series of Irish jigs, till at length, as one of the Catholics was setting to his partner, a Protestant's, He gave a whoop and a leap into the air, and at the same time, as if he couldn't bear the partnership of a heretic any longer, dealt him a tremendous blow with his shillelagh, and stretched him upon the sod. This was quite enough, and the bludgeons immediately began playing away at a tremendous rate. The poor Protestants were again quickly disposed of, and then arose a cry of huzzah for the Wicklow boys, huzzah for the Connaught boys, huzzah for Munster, and huzzah for Ulster. They then recommenced the fight as if they were determined to make an end of their soldiering altogether upon Salisbury Plain. We had, I remember, four officers with us, and they did their best to pacify the pugnacious recruits. One thrust himself amongst them, but was instantly knocked down for his pains, so that he was glad enough to escape. After they had completely tired themselves, they began to slacken in their endeavours, and apparently to feel the effects of the blows they dealt each other and at length suffering themselves to be pacified, the officers got them into Andover. Scarcely had we been a couple of hours there, and obtained some refreshment, ere these incorrigible blackguards again commenced quarrelling, and, collecting together in the streets, created so serious a disturbance that the officers, getting together a body of constables, seized some of the most violent, and succeeded in thrusting them into the town jail. Upon this their companions again collected, and endeavoured to break open the prison gates. Baffled in this attempt, they rushed through the streets, knocking down everybody they met. The drums now commenced beating up for a volunteer corps of the town, which quickly mustering, drew up in the street before the jail, and immediately were ordered to load with ball. This somewhat pacified the rioters, and our officers persuaded them to listen to a promise of pardon for the past. Peace was at length restored amongst them. The next day, we marched for Ashford in Kent where I joined the 95th Rifles, and about six months after my joining, four companies of the 2nd Battalion were ordered on the expedition to Denmark. We embarked at Deal, and sailing for the hostile shores, landed on a little place called, I think, Scarlet Island, somewhere between Elsinore and Copenhagen. The expedition consisted of about 30,000 men, and at the moment of our getting on shore, the whole force set up one simultaneous and tremendous cheer, a sound I cannot describe, it seems so inspiring. This, indeed, was the first time of my hearing the style in which our men give tongue when they get near the enemy, though afterwards my ears became pretty well accustomed to such sounds. As soon as we got on shore, the rifles were pushed forward as the advance, in chain order, through some thick woods of fir. and when we had cleared these woods and approached Copenhagen, sentries were posted on the roads and openings leading towards the town, in order to intercept all comers and prevent all supplies. Such posts we occupied for about three days and nights, whilst the town was being fired on by our shipping. I rather think this was the first time of Congreve rockets being brought into play, and as they rushed through the air in the dark, they appeared like so many fiery serpents, creating, I should think, terrible dismay amongst the besieged. As the main army came up, we advanced and got as near under the walls of the place as we could, without being endangered by the fire from our own shipping. We now received orders ourselves to commence firing, and the rattling of the guns I shall not easily forget. I felt so much exhilarated that I could hardly keep back, and was checked by the commander of the company, Captain Leach, who called to me by name to keep my place. About this time, my front rank man, a tall fellow named Jack Johnson, shoot a disposition as though the firing had on him an effect the reverse of what it had on many others of the company, for he seemed inclined to hang back, and once or twice turned round in my face. I was a rear-ranked man, and porting my piece in the excitement of the moment, I swore that if he did not keep his ground, I would shoot him dead on the spot, so that he found it would be quite as dangerous for him to return as to go on. I feel sorry to record the want of courage of this man, but I do so with less pain as it gives me the opportunity of saying that during many years' arduous service, it is the only instance I remember of a British soldier endeavouring to hold back when his comrades were going forward. Indeed, Johnson was never again held in estimation amongst the rifle corps, for the story got wind that I had threatened to shoot him for cowardice in the field, and Lieutenant Cox mentions to the colonel that he had overheard my doing so, and such was the contempt the man was held in by the rifles, that he was soon afterwards removed from amongst us to a veteran battalion. Whilst in Denmark, we led a tolerably active life, the rifles being continually on the alert, ordered hither today and countermanded the next. Occasionally, too, when wanted in a hurry, we were placed in carts and rattled over the face of the country, in company with the dragoons of the German legion, so that if we had not so much fighting as afterwards in the peninsula, we had plenty of work to keep us from idleness. Occasionally, also, we had some pleasant adventures amongst the blue-eyed Danish lasses, for the rifles were always terrible fellows in that way. One night, I remember, a party of us had possession of a gentleman's house in which his family were residing. The family consisted of the owner of the mansion, his wife, and five very handsome daughters, besides their servants. The first night of our occupation of the premises the party was treated with the utmost civility and everything was set before us as if we had been their equals for although it was not very pleasant to have a company of foreign soldiers in the house it was doubtless thought best to do everything possible to consolate such guests. Accordingly on this night a large party of the green jackets and ceremoniously sat down to tea with their family. Five beautiful girls in the drawing room with rather awkward companions For a set of rough and ready riflemen. Unscrupulous and bold, and I cannot say I felt easy. All went on very comfortably for some time. Our fellows drank their tea very genteelly, whilst one young lady presided at the urn to serve it out, and the others sat on each side of their father and mother, chatting to us, and endeavouring to make themselves as agreeable as they could. By and by, however, some of our men expressed themselves dissatisfied with tea and toast, and demanded something stronger and liquors were accordingly served to them. This was followed by more familiarity, and, the ice once broken, all respect for the host and hostess was quickly lost. I had feared this would prove the case, and on seeing several of the men commence pulling the young ladies about, kissing them and proceeding to other acts of rudeness, I saw that matters would quickly get worse, unless I interfered. Jumping up, therefore, I endeavoured to restore order, and upbraided them with the blackguardism of their behaviour after the kindness with which we had been used. This remonstrance had some effect, and when I added that I would immediately go in quest of an officer and report the first man I saw ill-used the ladies, I at length succeeded in extricating them from their persecutors. The father and mother were extremely grateful to me for my interference, and I kept careful guard over the family whilst we remained in that house, which luckily was not long. Soon after the expedition returned to England and I came with others of the rifles in a Danish man of war, the Princess Caroline, and landed at Deal, from whence we had started. From Deal we marched to Hythe and there we lay until the year 1808 and in that year four companies of the 2nd Battalion to which I belong were ordered to Portugal. In that year I first saw the French. If you're enjoying this podcast and want access to exclusive content early access to our monthly feature documentary and private podcasts, amongst many of the benefits, then consider joining our Patreon from as little as £1. By doing so, you'll get access to all these features, plus your support will help us to keep history alive. Hit the link in the description of this episode and navigate to our Patreon to sign up. Chapter 2 I wish I could picture the splendid sight of the shipping in the Downs. At the time we embarked with about 20,000 men. Those were times which the soldiers of our own more peaceable days have little conception of. At Cork, where our ships cast anchor, we lay for something like six weeks, during which time the expedition was not disembarked, with the exception of our four companies of rifles, who were every day landed for the purpose of drill. On such occasions our merry bugle sounded over the country, and we were skirmished about in very lively fashion, always being embarked again at night. At the expiration of the time I have mentioned, our sails were given to the wind, and amidst the cheers of our comrades, we sailed majestically out of the cove of Cork for the hostile shore, where we arrived safely and disembarked at Mondego Bay. The rifles were first out of the vessels, for we were, indeed, always in the front in advance, and in rear in the retreat. Like the Kentish men of old, we claimed the post of honour in the field. Being immediately pushed forwards up the country in advance of the main body, many of us, in this hot climate, very soon began to find out the misery of the frightful load we were condemned to march and fight under, with the burning sun above our heads and our feet sinking every step into the hot sand. The weight I myself toiled under was tremendous, and I often wonder at the strength I possessed at this period, which enabled me to endure it. For, indeed, I am convinced that many of our infantry sank and died under the weight of their knapsacks alone. For my own part, being a handicraft, I marched under a weight sufficient to impede the free motions of a donkey, for besides my well-fitted kit, there was the greatcoat rolled on its top, my blanket and camp kettle, my haversack, stuffed full of leather for repairing the men's shoes, together with a hammer and other tools, the lapstone I took the liberty of flinging to the devil. Ship biscuit and beef for three days. I also carried my canteen filled with water, my hatchet and rifle, and eighty rounds of ball cartridge in my pouch. This last, except the beef and biscuit, being the best thing I owned, and which I always gave the enemy the benefit of when opportunity offered. Altogether, the quantity of things I had on my shoulders was enough and more than enough for my wants, sufficient indeed to sink a little fellow of five feet seven inches into the earth. Nay, so awkwardly was the load our men bore in those days, placed upon their backs, that the free motion of the body was impeded, the head held down from the pile at the back of the neck, and the soldier half-beaten before he came to the scratch. We marched till it was nearly dark, and then halted for the night. I myself was immediately posted sentinel between two hedges, and in a short time General Fane came up, and himself cautioned me to be alert. Remember, sentinel, he said that we are now near an active enemy. Therefore, be careful here, and mind what you are about. Next day, the peasantry sent into our camp a great quantity of the good things of their country, so that our men regaled themselves upon oranges, grapes, melons, and figs, and we had an abundance of delicacies which many of us had never before tasted. Amongst other presents, a live calf was presented to the rifles, so that altogether we feasted in our first entrance into Portugal, like a company of aldermen. The next day we again advanced, and being in a state of the utmost anxiety to come up with the French, neither the heat of the burning sun, long miles or heavy knapsacks were able to diminish our ardour. Indeed, I often look back with wonder at the light-hearted style, the jollity and reckless indifference with which men who were destined in so short a time to fall, hurried onwards to the field of strife, seemingly without a thought of anything but the sheer love of meeting the foe and the excitement of battle. It was five or six days before the Battle of Relika. The army was on the march, and we were pushing on pretty fast. The whole force had slept the night before in open fields, indeed, as far as I know, for the rifles were always in the front at this time. They had been for many days without any covering but the sky. We were pelting along the streets of a village, the name of which I do not think I ever knew, so I cannot name it. I was in the front. And had just cleared the village when I recollect observing General Hill, afterwards Lord Hill, and another officer ride up to a house and give their horses to some of the soldiery to hold. Our bugles at that moment sounded the halt, and I stood leaning upon my rifle near to the door of the mansion which General Hill had entered. There was a little garden before the house, and I stood by the gate. Whilst I remained there, the officer who had entered with General Hill came to the door and called to me, Rifleman, said he. Come here. I entered the gate and approached him. Go. He continued, handing me a dollar, and try if you can get some wine, for we are devilish thirsty here. Taking the dollar, I made my way back to the village, at a wine house where the men were crowding around the door and clamouring for drink, for the day was intensely hot. I succeeded, after some little difficulty, in getting a small pipkin full of wine, but the crowd was so great but I found as much trouble in paying for it as in getting it, so I returned back as fast as I was able, fearing that the general would be impatient and move off before I reached him. I remember Lord Hill was loosening his sword belt as I handed him the wine. Drink first, rifleman, said he, and I took a good pull at the pipkin and held it to him again. He looked at it as I did so, and told me I might drink it all up, for it appeared greasy, so I swallowed the remainder and handed him back the dollar which I had received from the officer. Keep the money, he said. My man, go back to the village once more, and try if you cannot get me another draft. Saying this, he handed me a second dollar, and told me to be quick. I made my way back to the village, got another pipkin full, and returned as fast as I could. The general was pleased with my promptness, and drank with great satisfaction, handing the remainder to the officer who attended him, and I dare say, if he could ever recollect the circumstance afterwards. That was a sweeter draft after the toil of the morning march, as he has drank at many a nobleman's board in Old England since. I remember remarking Lord Hill for the second time in my life, under circumstances which, from their not being of everyday occurrence, fixed it upon my mind. The 29th Regiment received so terrible a fire that I saw the right wing almost annihilated, and the colonel, I think his name was Lennox, lay sprawling amongst the rest. We had ourselves caught it pretty handsomely, for there was no cover for us, and we were rather too near. The living skirmishers were lying beside heaps of their own dead, but still we had held our own till the battalion regiments came up. Fire and retire is a very good sound, but the rifles were not over fond of such notes. We never performed that manoeuvre, except when it was made pretty plain to us that it was quite necessary. The twenty-ninth, however, had got their fairing here at this time, and the shock of that fire seemed to stagger the whole line, and make them recoil. At that moment, a little confusion appeared in the ranks, I thought. Lord Hill was near at hand, and saw it, and I observed him come galloping up. He put himself at the head of the regiment, and restored them to order in a moment, pouring a regular and sharp fire upon the enemy. He galled them in return, and, remaining with the 29th till he brought them to the charge, quickly sent the foe to the right about. It seemed to me that few men could have conducted the business with more coolness and quietude of matter, under such a storm of balls as he was exposed to. Indeed, I have never forgotten him from that day. At the time I was remarking these matters, loading and firing as I lay, another circumstance divided my attention for a while and made me forget even the gallant conduct of General Hill. A man near me uttered a scream of agony, and, looking from the 29th, who were on my right, to the left, whence the screech had come, I saw one of our sergeants, named Fraser, sitting in a doubled-up position and swaying backwards and forwards, as though he had got a terrible pain in his bowels. He continued to make so much complaint that I arose and went to him, for he was rather a crony of mine. Oh, Harris, said he, as I took him in my arms, I shall die. I shall die. The agony is so great that I cannot bear it. It was, indeed, dreadful to look upon him. The froth came from his mouth and the perspiration poured from his face. Thank heaven, he was soon out of pain, and laying him down I returned to my place. Poor fellow, he had suffered more for the short time that he was dying than any man I think I ever saw in the same circumstances. I had the curiosity to return and look at him after the battle. A musket ball, I found, had taken him sideways and gone through both groins. Within about half an hour after this, I left Sergeant Fraser, and, indeed, for the time, had as completely forgotten him, as if he had died a hundred years back. The sight of so much bloodshed around will not suffer the mind to dwell long on any particular casualty, even though it happens to one's dearest friend. There was no time either to think, for all was action with us rifles just at this moment, and the barrel of my piece was so hot from continual firing that I could hardly bear to touch it, and was obliged to grasp the stock beneath the iron as I continued to blaze away. James Ponton was another crony of mine, a gallant fellow. He had pushed himself in front of me, and was checked by one of our officers for his rashness. Keep back, you Ponton! The lieutenant said to him, more than once, but Ponton was not to be restrained by anything but a bullet when in action. This time he got one, which striking him in the thigh, I suppose hit an artery, for he died quickly. The Frenchman's balls were flying very wickedly at that moment, and I crept up to Ponton and took shelter by lying behind, and making a rest for my rifle of his dead body. It strikes me that I revenged his death by the assistance of his carcass. At any rate, I tried my best to hit his enemies hard. There were two small buildings in our front, and the French, having managed to get into them, annoyed us much from that quarter. A small rise in the ground close before these houses also favoured them, and our men were being handled very severely in consequence. They became angry, and wouldn't stand it any longer. One of the skirmishers, jumping up, rushed forward, crying, Over! Boys! Over! Over! When instantly the whole line responded to the cry, over, over, over. They ran along the grass like wildfire and dashed at the rise, fixing their sword bayonets as they ran. The French light bobs could not stand the sight, turned about and fled, and, getting possession of their ground, we were soon inside the buildings. After the battle was over, I stepped across the other house I've mentioned in order to see what was going on there, for the one I remained in was now pretty well filled with the wounded, both French and English who had managed to get there for a little shelter. Two or three surgeons also had arrived at this house and were busily engaged in giving their assistance to the wounded, now also here lying as thickly as in the building which I had left. But what struck me most forcibly was that from the circumstance of some wine butts having been left in the apartment and their having in the engagement been perforated by bullets and otherwise broken, the red wine had escaped most plentifully and ran down upon the earthen floor where the wounded were lying, so that many of them were soaked in the wine with which their blood was mingled.
0: Confidence starts with loving who you are.